0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So nice to see y'all. We're going to finish Exodus next week. Do you believe that? Some of you have no faith. Oh, you have little faith. You'll see why tonight, probably. <laughs> You'll see why tonight, probably, while we'll finish the book of Exodus next week. But we will finish the book of Exodus next week. It'll be our last study in this book. You brought your Bibles, yes? Yes good thinking. Exodus chapter 35. We were texted a message that was a little bit unrelated because it deals with Genesis, but um, we'll throw it up anyway because it does segue with something that we read about with Moses in Exodus, so we'll begin with that. Instead of usually how we normally begin, since the text question came up, it says, um, did Adam and Eve see God's face? It's a good question. Um, It's asked because the Bible declares no one, no man has seen God at any time So the question is, well, what about Adam and Eve? Did they see God's face? I don't believe they did. First of all, we're not told they saw His face. It's not even mentioned at all. But what is mentioned is they heard God's voice. God walked with them in the cool of the day, we're told. We're not told how or what form He took, whether there was some, like with Abraham, some form that He took, like the angel of the Lord, that's a possibility, but to see God in His total effulgent glory, no one has ever seen. So the, the Lord walked with Adam and with Eve, but He doesn't record that they saw His face, but they did hear His voice. Okay, enough said with that, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we turn our hearts toward You tonight. Bibles open, hearts open. And in sitting here, Lord, we make a commitment that our bodies are surrendered as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable act of worship. Lord, with that commitment to tune in, we don't want anything or anyone to distract from how the Spirit of God might seek to apply truth to our hearts. Some of us, Lord, are just starting out in the Christian faith. Like one that I just read in the chat room, joining us via the Internet, who has recently come to faith in Christ. Others are veterans here. They've they've served you and walked with you for a long time. All of us, Lord, at different levels still need to hear from You. Still need the touch of Your Spirit. Still need the voice of the Spirit speaking to our hearts. You know our needs. You know our situations. You know where we have come from, the things that are causing anxiety, if anything at all, in our lives. That we surrender to You and... Rather than being distracted by those things, we are determined to tune in, to listen as you speak through your word. Help us, Lord, to apply these truths in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a wonderful experience yesterday. I met with a man that I hadn't seen since fourth grade. I didn't even know he was in town. We grew up in Southern California. I remembered his name. Joe emailed me and then gave us a call, and I set up a lunch. I met him in first grade. And the last time that I remember seeing him was fourth grade. That's a long time ago. Obviously, Joe looks a lot different today than he did in fourth grade. As do I. Now, he told my assistant what he looked like you know what his hair and his beard he didn't have that in fourth grade what what it looked like but but as i walked into the restaurant and i i saw him it was an instant recognition which fa- fascinated me that i recognized him not because of a beard or hair which had totally changed and i have totally changed but there are certain Features that are recognizable that even as a first and fourth grader, I still remembered. I remembered the shape of his eyes and his nose and his mouth and the way the lower lip was formed. I remembered thinking that as I studied his face in first grade. It, it just came back. I recognized him. It's like when we meet somebody, we construct a facial map that enables us to recognize that person for months and years to come. The way the features are set in the face and the way they communicate with each other, relate to each other, it's very unique. We all have that unique capability. We relate to each other by looking at each other face to face. That's when a relationship is at its best, not in an email, not in a letter, not even in a phone call, but to be able to See the face and the body language created by the face while the words are coming out is always the best way to communicate. It's the most intimate form of fellowship. A face-to-face kind of communication. So I find it interesting when somebody comes up to me and they'll say, I've listened to you for years on the radio. You're not what I pictured in my mind. And I always feel like I'm disappointing them. I don't know what they (laughs) picture. And so I often say, well, I'm sorry. But when we can see the face and put the voice with the face, the picture is complete. And so the Bible speaks about the communication and relationship with God along the same lines. The psalmist said, hide not thy face from me, O Lord, or may the Lord's face shine upon us, Psalm 61. Now Moses wanted to see the face of God. Show me your glory. God didn't let him see his face. And we've gone through why. He was, however, allowed to see something less than the full manifestation of God. God put it in in this fashion. I'm going to pass by you. I'm going to put my hand over where I hide you in the cleft of the rock and you'll see me after I pass by. You'll see my back or the afterglow of the effect of the divine presence. Well, even that had enough phosphorescence in it to make Moses' face glow. He came down from the mountain and the Bible says back in chapter 34 where we were able to end last week, Thought we'd get through 35. But it says in two verses that Moses' face shone. And we started going through a little litany of what that shining face meant, what it confirmed. We, we, we mentioned, first of all, that Moses' glowing face confirmed God's choice. Moses was picked by God to be his representative. He was the mediator of the covenant. This is the guy, no one else. There was some question, and there will be some question by a few, as to, is Moses the right leader? But God confirmed his choice. Moses' face was glowing. Also, we saw last week, it confirmed God's presence. Moses had been in the presence of the Lord. His face is glowing as he comes down the mountain, confirming that God's presence as seen in the mediator, is going to be with them on the rest of the journey. God is not forsaking them, but His presence is going to go with them. We saw also that it confirmed God's greatness. Moses was with Yahweh and His face shine. What other person was ever in the presence of a false god, a pagan god or goddess, and came away from that experience with their face glowing? No one. And that's simply because there are no other gods. They're all invented by people. They're all made up. And so people will say, well, your God is a lot like my God. No, He's not. There's only one true and living God. All the rest are wannabes. They're, they're falsifications invented by mankind. So it showed God's greatness. He was in the presence of God. And it was visible. I heard a story of um, a man, a missionary in India. was traveling around and a Hindu walked up to him and said, What do you put on your face to make it shine? The missionary said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't put anything on my face to make it shine. He goes, Oh, no, that's not true. He says, Everyone that I meet like you, believers in Jesus... You all have that same look about you. I've seen it, he said, from the cities around Agra to the streets of Mumbai. Then the missionary understood that what that Hindu was seeing was the reflection of the light of God's truth. That peace, that confidence that comes in a relationship with God that is visible to some and obviously to that Hindu man. Now, I had an interesting thing happen to me when I was a relatively new believer. I was going to college and medical training in San Bernardino was a UCLA program. I went home to my apartment. I knew that I had an orderly that worked in the hospital that lived right across the driveway from me in that apartment. He knocked on my door that evening. And he said to me, I've never had this happen ever before. He said, I've watched you in the hospital. He says, it's like your face is glowing. It was, it was the oddest visit I've ever had. As I said, I've never had anyone ever tell me that before. I've had people say, smile, or don't smile as much, or, but never your face is glowing. So I immediately left the front door and went to the bathroom to look and see what I'd been exposed to. After all, I was working in radiology. Who knows? An isotope, perhaps. So I decided to use that opportunity to share the gospel with him. I thought, if my face is glowing and he noticed it, I'm going to get a little bit of his background. What was most interesting is that he was a self-proclaimed Satan worshiper. But he had at least enough interest piqued that he wanted to find out why my face was glowing. And I said, look, I don't think my face is glowing, but deep down inside my heart is glowing, and here's why. And by the end of that conversation, I was privileged to lead him to Christ. Not because I glowed, but because God's true. So God confirmed his choice. God confirmed his presence. God confirmed his greatness. Also, we saw last week, God confirmed his power. Moses had been in the presence of God he had changed because of it, and in coming back down to the camp, they could see there was a change because he was in the presence of God. But then we gave you a cliffhanger last week. I said there's, there's a fifth confirmation, but I don't have enough time to finish it. So that's where we begin tonight. The glowing face of Moses, fifth of all, confirmed God's plan. God's plan. You see, the glowing face of Moses and the reason he put a veil over his face, one of the reasons, we're told, is because the glow wasn't staying as strong. As the days went by, the glow was fading off of Moses. Now, now the people were like blown away and intimidated by the glowing face, so it says Moses put a veil over it. But apparently, Moses and Aaron could tell that the glow was fading and so put a veil over it. The people are, you know, enjoying this experience. They're seeing the presence and power of God. But the glory is fading away, so put a veil over it. Now, I want you to turn to a scripture in the New Testament to see that. So turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 12, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Here was God's plan, and the glowing face revealed the plan of God. The law was temporary, it was not permanent. The New Testament was permanent and it would overshadow and overtake the Old Covenant. And when Paul wrote these words, he was at that shoulder period, that transition period, that overlap between the Old and the New Testament. The Old was fading away. The New Testament was permanent. That was God's plan from the beginning. It was never meant to be a permanent relationship or a permanent covenant. Now, when he wrote these words, there was still a temple in Jerusalem. Sacrifices were ongoing in that temple every single day. But very soon, that would all be done. 70 A.D., you know what happened. The Romans came in, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple. And since A.D. 70, sacrificial, formal Judaism has come to a complete end. Did you know that? There are no sacrifices. Since 70 A.D., the Jewish system has had no means to atone for their sins and they're in a little bit of a dilemma because the Bible says in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Torah, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The Old was passing away. It was designed to be temporary. The New Testament is permanent. Also, when Paul wrote these words, using this experience of Moses, there was a group of people inside the church known as Judaizers. Some of you have heard that term before. Judaizers were people who said they were Christians, and many of them probably were, but what they were trying to do is combine two covenants, the old and the new, the law of Moses and the New Testament, and kind of merge them, make a syncretistic system out of two covenants. As... Interestingly, I still find people today trying to do that. Trying to go back to the laws of Moses, back to the practices of Judaism. And so what Paul will write here in Galatians and other places is, why on earth would you want to go back to something that has faded away and was designed to be temporary, when you have a freedom and something permanent in Christ? Now here's just a little footnote of interest. In the Hebrew, when it says that Moses' face shone, the word literally is Moses' face horned. It's related to the word horn, like the horn of an animal. And it's because the word literally means rayed or showed rays. So it's translated here, shown, but it could be translated horn. It's just simply emanated Rays. When Jerome translated the Bible into the Latin Vulgate, he was living in Bethlehem, when he translated it from Greek into Latin, he actually translated it horned. Moses' face horned. Now I'm sharing that with you because if you ever see ancient depictions of Moses by different artists, they often depict Moses with horns coming out of his head. Seriously. Uh, You'll find some of the greatest artist's During the Renaissance period, painted Moses, look it up, Google it tonight. Look up a depiction or or artwork of Moses and you'll see the horns because of Jerome's translation. Instead of shown, it was horns. So that's just a little bit of trivia if you're interested. Now let's go back. Back to the Old Testament. Verse 1. Boy, I promise we'd be done next week. But, but watch. Then Moses gathered all the congregation. No, just kidding. <laughs> See, if I was J. Vernon McGee, there's no way. Then Moses gathered all the congregation. It's like, it would take me a month to get through it. Okay. Backtrack. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them these are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do work shall be done for 6 days but the 7th day shall be a holy day for you a sabbath of rest to the Lord whoever does any work on it shall be put to death now God has already gone through the sabbath laws why is it coming up again why is it repeated again well This is the repetition of the Sabbath law now for the tabernacle builders who probably were thinking that perhaps they were exempt in some way because they're doing God's work. And so I want you to notice something. This is the only time it's mentioned in relationship to the Sabbath, but it's mentioned nonetheless. And so look at verse 3. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day evidently, there was a a thinking going around that to kindle a fire really wasn't work. It was like preparation for the work. It was like pre-work. So it's Sabbath day, but we can light a fire because after all, we're eventually going to do the Lord's work and we're going to need it for our meals during the Sabbath anyway. But now is the prohibition, and it's the only time it's written up to this point anyway. You will kindle no fire throughout your dwellings, on the Sabbath day. Now, later on, the rabbis will comment on this verse, and they will say, what this means is, you are not permitted before the Sabbath to light any kind of a fire, or I'm sorry, on the Sabbath to light any kind of a fire. So, before the Sabbath begins, light a fire in your home to provide light in your dwellings, but you can add no fuel to it later on in the middle of the Sabbath. So that today, the modern Orthodox Jew will not turn on a light switch on the Sabbath because it's kindling a fire, it's starting the spark, it's creating light. They won't turn on their oven, because it's Shabbat. So in Israel, you can buy Shabbat or Sabbath lights, and they're on timers. They begin the glow of the light before Sabbath, and they'll turn off at the end. You can also have timers for all your appliances, so you can get them going, and then you can have heat. If you ever go to Jerusalem, and you're there on the Sabbath, on a Saturday, and you go to one of the oldest neighborhoods in the city, Maya Sharim, if you try to drive your car through Maya Sharim, you'll be surprised because the Orthodox Jews will throw stones at your car. Because you are violating the Sabbath. You're kindling a fire on the Sabbath by driving the car. That, that's how the law reads, that's how they live. You can do it before or after, but not on the Sabbath. Which to me brings up something interesting in the light of Seventh-day Adventism. If you're familiar with that. Seventh-day Adventists will say, I keep the Sabbath, and we worship on Saturday, not on Sunday, like those who take the mark of the beast. That's what they used to call it, worshiping on Sunday. We worship on Saturday. We go to church on Saturday. Now, When they tell me that, I like to say, really? How do you get to church? I drive my car. I think you may be breaking the Sabbath. Because as the coil provides electricity to the spark plug that enables the spark, the ignition spark, and then the explosion of the gas in the air in that compressed cylinder, You've started a fire on the Sabbath. That's breaking the Sabbath. You don't keep the Sabbath. And so here's the prohibition, even for tabernacle workers. No fire shall be kindled on the Sabbath. Verse 4, Moses spoke to the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, etc., etc., etc. Now we have seen this command back in chapter 25. God told it to Moses. Moses is back down from the mountain the second time. Now they're actually taking up the offering. Note, this is not the tithe. This is a free will offering. This is above and beyond the tithe. It will be commanded to tithe. This is a separate offering, a free will offering from the heart... Separate from the tithe. Sometimes people will say, well, I take my tithe and I give it to different places every month, depending on how I feel led. That's good, but that's not your tithe. I give my tithe to my local fellowship, and then above and beyond that, as the Lord prompts my heart toward other things, I'll also give. That's the idea here. The idea of the tithe is different. The idea of the tithe is that you relinquish control. It's not like as I feel led. You you in the Old Testament would give a tithe to the priests as they feel led. You are losing control. You are trusting the Lord that the Lord's work will be carried out and maintained through that tithe. This is separate. It's above and beyond that. Now here's the question. Where did they get the silver and the gold and, and all the purple and all the rest of the stuff? From, from Egypt, from the Egyptians. Back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham way before any of this was even on the radar screen. He said, your descendants will be afflicted for 400 years. They'll be in service to foreigners. They'll be in a land not their own. But I will punish that nation and bring them out with great wealth. So that in the book of Exodus, and we've already covered it. I'm just refreshing your memory. In fact, I'll just read it to you. I marked it in my Bible. This is Exodus chapter 12. Listen to this. Now, the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. And they asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. They just asked for them. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. This is wild. It's like the Lord just opened up their hearts because the Egyptians hated the Hebrews. But the Hebrews could go up to an Egyptian and go, You know, I love that bracelet. It's solid gold, isn't it? Oh, yes, it is. could cost my husband a lot. I'd like it. Okay. And she give it away. Anything they asked for. And now, by the time they asked for it, the Egyptians were happy to get rid of the Hebrews. Take it. Take everything. Get out of here. You've, you've caused enough havoc in our nation. So thus they plundered him. So all of that spoil they have, and they're going to give it in this offering. Verse 10. All who are gifted artisans, among you shall come... And make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent, its coverings, clasps, boards, bars, pillars, sockets. The ark with its poles, etc. Down in verse 20. And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed. And the reason I'm skipping is because this is repeated material. All that you read in chapter 25 to 31. This is saying they did that. And this is them doing that. So. I'll refresh a little bit where it's pertinent, but I'll skip over material that is repetitive. Verse 20, the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and everyone came whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing, and they brought the Lord's offering, it was the Lord's offering, for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all of its service, and for the holy garments. That's how the Lord wants, I believe, all of us to give. Not out of pressure, but out of praise. It's to be part of our worship. We're to do it with a generous heart, not with a guilty conscience. Second Corinthians 9 says, So let every man give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Hilaron is the word cheerful, hilarious giver. God loves him. We go, Lord, you gave it to me to begin with. I'm happy. I'm happy. Hilariously joyful to see your work continue. That's how the Lord wants us to give. So, rather than how much, the Lord is interested in how one gives. Do you remember in Mark chapter 12, it says that Jesus sat opposite the treasury and watched, listen to the wording, watched, how people put their money into the treasury. Not what, not how much, not what the amount was, how they did it. Did they do it simply? Did they do it ostentatiously? Did they do it to be recognized or to be seen by men? And so I don't believe, based upon biblical text, that anybody should be pressured into giving or it should be done with great fanfare. I don't have huge pledge drives. Or I don't resort to, wait a minute, I'm getting a word from the Lord, there are 20 people that have $1,000 each, hallelujah. (laughs) I believe that is patently wrong. But as the Lord moves the heart, and as you decide in your heart, so a person should give. Jesus said, when you give or do a charitable deed, you shouldn't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Did you know that Mark Twain used to go to church? He didn't speak too favorably of church, if you read his writings. But he said he went to church, and he had planned to put money in the offering, but he heard the preacher go on and on and on, begging and begging for money, that not only did he not give what he was going to give, but when the offering plate came around, he actually took money out of it and put it in his pocket. Just got sick of hearing that stuff. That's why we have agape boxes, so you can't do that. (laughs) Verse 22, just kidding. They came both men and women, as many as had a willing heart and brought earrings and nose rings. Yep, they had those back then rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold, that is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord, and every man with whom was found blue and purple and scarlet, etc. They gave. They gave freely. And that's how we ought to give. It's true that um, no significant work of the Lord is ever done without the contribution or the volunteerism of God's people. And we ought to see finances as, well, we're stewards of whatever the Lord has placed in our hands. We're stewards of it. We don't own it. God owns it. All of it is His. He's just saying, give 10% and then some, as the Lord lays it on your heart. But it's all His. He lets you keep 90%. Be happy. Now, back in the Old Testament, it was a requirement for the tithe. This is a free will offering. In the New Testament, it's totally free will. There is no mandatory amount. There's no mandatory tithe. It's as you purpose in your heart. God loves a hilarious giver. Look at it this way. Somebody said money is like manure. Stack it up and it stinks. Spread it around. It makes things grow. It's a good way to see it. Lord, I want to see things grow. How can I invest in your work in your kingdom? Now, Martin Luther said something interesting also. He said, there are three conversions that are required, the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind and the conversion of the pocketbook. And he said, I have found by experience. The third one is the most difficult to be converted. i oh, I give you my heart, and my mind, but not my pocketbook. God, we're in a recession. Don't you know? You know that God promises to give and it will be given to you, pressed down, running over, shaken together? I've discovered you can never, ever outgive God. Try it. In fact, it's the only time in the Bible God says, Test me on this. Test me on this and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you that you're unable to contain. So, verse 25. All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun of the blue, the purple, the scarlet, the fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom and spun yarn of goat's hair. And then verse 27, the rulers. So we have the men, the women, and the rulers. I find it interesting that typically, typically, the word that has been reserved up to this point to refer only to the masculine gender, males, that is gifted artisans, it's only been males up to this part, is now tweaked. It's a little bit different. See, this is a, this is a, a call that goes out, a talent call, for anyone who's gifted in these areas. Men and women. And I draw your attention to it because in God's work, It's not just supposed to be men hierarchically doing everything and women are second-class citizens. If you get that idea that that's a New Testament directive, you would be wrong. Even in the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we see great women. Miriam, a worship leader. Deborah, one of the judges of Israel. Huldah, one of the prophetesses of Israel. Not just prophets, prophetess. Deaconesses in the early church. Philip had four virgin daughters who also prophesied. And so in the Old Testament, they contributed by their giftedness, as did the men, as did the rulers. Verse 29, the children of Israel brought a freewill offering to the Lord, all the men, all the women, whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work, which the Lord, by the hand of Moses, had commanded to be done. And Moses said to the children of Israel, see, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, we read about him. The son of Uri, the son of her, not him, her, sorry, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, understanding, in knowledge, in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold, silver, and bronze and cutting jewels for setting and carving wood, to work in all manner of artistic workmanship, and he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, work of the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. So... These guys are the design directors. These two men are the design directors of the project that's going to take six months to build. They're the guys in charge of it all. They're collecting the materials. They're the ones who have the gift not only in engraving but in administration. So the children of Israel are going to take this offering and they're going to build God a tent in the wilderness. Do you know that in the New Testament, we're called to also utilize our gifts, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, building for God, it says, a holy habitation. They were building a tent for God to dwell in. We're building up the body of Christ, a holy habitation, a holy dwelling place, the church, by the utilization of our gifts. You were born with certain talents. You were born again with spiritual gifts. Often those spiritual gifts dovetail with your natural talents. But in employing the spiritual gifts and adding your natural talents, you can reach a community, you can build up the body of Christ, you can do what others can't do. Some of you have the gift of administration. Some of you have the gift of teaching. Others of you have the gift of helps etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I was so proud of our men who went out on their turn it loose when the men went out and found people within the body of Christ who needed things. One gal who just needed a light bulb changed in the vanity in the bathroom because she nor her husband could reach up anymore to replace the light bulb so they couldn't go in that room to use it. Clean up in the yards a couple of guys replacing sprinkler systems using their gifts so that God and his kingdom could be glorified. Now that was men. We've had Turn It Loose where there's men and women. And there are certain things that God can call a woman to do that a man can't do and vice versa. I heard a great story. county commissioner in Pittsburgh, his name was Pete Flattery, Flaherty, Pete Flaherty, county commissioner in Pittsburgh. He was out on a job site one day where the city of Pittsburgh was building some community building. It was one of the community projects. And he was scoping it out, making sure everything was a okay and lined up like he wanted it. And he was there with his wife, Nancy. So it was Pete, the county commissioner, and Nancy, his wife, and they're surveying the job. One of the construction workers yells to Nancy and say, Nancy, do you recognize me? Remember, I'm so-and-so, we used to date in high school. As Pete and Nancy walked away, Pete said, Nancy, aren't you glad you married me? Because if you'd have married him, you'd have been the wife of just a city construction worker. She smiled and said, no, honey, if I'd have married him, he'd be the county commissioner. (laughs) Good answer. A lot of what a man is, is because of what the woman in his life has done for him. Now in chapter 36, we're going to breeze through the next two chapters, because as I mentioned, a lot of it is repetitive, so we'll just take a couple of the highlights. The construction actually begins in this chapter, and as I said, it takes six months. So verse 1, Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord had put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all the manner of work for the service of the sanctuary to do according to all that the Lord commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. Are you noticing a common thread in this chapter and in the previous chapter? It's not only your heart needs to be stirred to give financially, your heart must be stirred by God to serve practically and spiritually. God wants your heart. God wants you and I to have the right motive when we serve. It's not all about you and your need to do a project because it's how you're built. You're just project driven and I just want... It's not about that. God has stirred your heart and you're not doing this because of duty but because of desire. You're not doing it because you have to. No, you want to. That's the right attitude to have. You're not keeping a clock or watching a clock or punching a clock. It's It's 5 o'clock, going to leave. No, I'm just, I'm serving the Lord. Keep something in mind. Here's a little context. They were slaves, man. They used to have to work. But now, to be able to work as you want to do it? Boy, I, I tell you what, I see this all the time. I'm so honored with this fellowship because I see your attitude when it comes to serving. You have jobs in the secular world, many of you, most of you, and yet you will serve in this capacity or in that capacity, in the church, volunteering, leading up a group, being part of a group, setting up, or in the community. And when you serve the Lord, you do it with such joy, and people notice that, and I hear those reports. So, as they say in Australia, good on you for that. And they receive from Moses... All the offering which the children of Israel had brought the work of service for the work of service of making the sanctuary, so they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Now watch what happens. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work that he was doing. And they spoke to Moses, saying, "The people bring much more than enough." For the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary, and the people were restrained from bringing. For the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed, too much. What a good problem to have. I have never heard of this ever being repeated at any other time in history since. Where we have to stand up and go, Please stop giving your time and your money to the Lord's work. It's too much. Never been a problem since, but it was a problem then. They were so grateful for the second chance they got as Moses came back off that mountain the second time. And they're building God a sanctuary. They have the right attitude now. Three workers in one city were doing the same exact job. A man approached all three workers and asked all three workers, hey, what are you doing? The first worker said, I'm breaking rocks. He went up to the second guy, hey, what are you doing? He said, I'm earning a living. He went up to the third one and said, hey, what are you doing? He said, I'm building a cathedral. They were all doing exactly the same job, but they had three different perspectives. I'm breaking rocks. I'm earning a living. I'm building a cathedral. We're building a tabernacle for God in the desert, a jewel in the desert. So they gave of substance and of service. But it says it was indeed too much in verse 7. Now, the next four chapters is the construction part. It begins verse 8 through 19. We've already dealt with. It's the hangings, the the hanging curtains, uh, and the coverings that are made. Uh, Beginning in verse 20 down to verse 34, the boards are constructed and the bars for holding the thing together. In verse 35 down to verse 38, the veil is made And the screen is made. Now, we've seen all of the stuff for it already. We've read all these things. Now, it just says they made them, so we don't need to repeat them. Now, chapter 37. See, I told you we'd make it, and we'd finish next week. So we're going to cover three chapters tonight. We're in chapter 37. It'll go even faster. Verse 1. Then Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits was its length. The cubit and a half was its width a cubit and a half its height, and he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside, and he made a molding of gold all around it. Chapter 37, we have the furniture, the special furniture for inside the tabernacle structure. I refresh your memory. There are three compartments, there were three compartments in the tabernacle. Do you remember them? Number one, the outer court. Number two, inside the little tent structure, the holy place. And number three, the holy of holies. Those were the three spaces in the tabernacle, three compartments. The outer court, the priest went in to sacrifice and to wash. It measured 75 feet wide by 150 feet deep. If you were able to go into the holy place... Uh, That was 15 feet wide by 30 feet deep, and it had three articles of furniture. On the left-hand side, as you went in, was a lampstand. On the right-hand side, a table of showbread immediately in front of you before the veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. There was a little altar of incense. On the other side of that veil, in that secret spot where only the high priest went once a year, That's where God hung out. That was the special intersection where God would meet man when blood was applied to the mercy seat once a year. So there were six special articles of furniture that were made for the inside parts of the tabernacle, and they're outlined in this chapter. I just read the first couple of verses. That's the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, To put it in our measurements, it was 45 inches long uh, by... Uh, 27 inches wide by 27 inches tall. Had a lid on it. Solid gold. Angels covering it or cherubim covering it, their wings touching, looking down toward the mercy seat. Also of solid gold. Now inside that ark or that chest, just think of it as a chest. That's what it was, a box. There were three things that were kept. A copy of the law, that's the second copy. The first was busted by Mo because he was really ticked off. Remember, you broke them. So the second copy of the law, Aaron's rod that budded, and the third thing was, anybody remember? Jar of manna. Oh, you said manna. Jar of manna. Those things were kept in there as reminders. Now, the law is the law they failed to keep. It was God's covenant that was his standard. That was God's standard. They never really kept God's standard. In fact, they broke God's standard before Moses came down the mountain the first time. So the copy of the law was always a reminder that they failed to keep God's perfect standard. They broke the law. But aren't you glad, get the visual, that when the angels looked down, representing heaven looking down where God would meet, as they would look down, they couldn't see the broken law. They couldn't see the perfect standard of righteousness that man failed to keep. Instead, what they could see is that it was covered with gold and once a year covered in blood. Blood of an innocent victim would be sacrificed to kaffar to atone, to cover the law that had been broken. Beautiful visual, and we've given meaning to that before. Go over to verse 10. Doing fine for time. Verse 10 through 16, that table of showbread. If you you walked into that holy place, keep this in mind, you walked in, on your right-hand side, your right-hand side, would be this little table with 12 loaves of bread. That table was 36 inches long, it was 18 inches wide, and it was about 24 inches tall. It had 12 loaves of bread, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. So Israel gets represented three different ways. Uh, number one, the table of showbread. Number two, the high priest has a couple of stones on his shoulders, six names of the tribes on one, six on the other. And then a, a breastplate that hung over the ephod. that had 12 stones, one representing each of the 12 tribes. So the priest represents Israel before God, and they're represented in three different ways. So verse 10, he made a table of acacia wood. Now by, by the way, remember acacia wood is like indestructible. It's the hardest, very common wood, only found in the desert regions of the Middle East, particularly. It's found in a few other places, but it was abundant down there. And its measurements are given. That's the table of showbread. Verse 16, he made pure gold the utensils which were on the table of showbread. It's dishes, cups, bowls, pitchers for pouring. Uh, something else, uh, just to remind you, I think I mentioned this, but it's easy to forget a lot of these facts. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed finally in what year? 70 A.D. See, a lot of people don't know that. You, This church, you know that. That's cool. Okay, it was destroyed by a guy named... Anybody know his name? Titus, I heard that name. Titus, the son of Vespasian, the Roman emperor. Titus came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Took some of the utensils back to Rome. According to Josephus, one of the implements he had was the golden altar, uh, was the table of showbread. And when he was uh, giving his victory march through the streets of Rome, he took out the table of showbread to show the people, and the crowds in Rome became almost violently excited at the victory of having gold plundered from the Jerusalem temple. If you go to Rome today and look at a particular arch in the Forum of Rome, still in place, called the Arch of Titus, built for Titus after 70 A.D., still there today, on the inside, you'll see a relief carved out in stone, and it shows the armies of Titus marching through Rome. And one of the things they show them carrying is the table of showbread and the two silver trumpets that were also used by the priests. It's in bold relief on the stone since 70 AD, still there today. Another little footnote for you, trivia. Verse 17. The golden lampstand, the menorah. That's what you'd see if you walked in. It was on your left-hand side in the holy place. He also made a lampstand of pure gold. Hammered work. He made the lampstand, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, the ornamental knobs, its flowers uh, were of the same piece. So all the way down to verse 24, the lampstand is described. Why'd they need a lamp in there? Because there was no natural light. It's as simple as that. And It was representative, yes, but... The priest would be unable to do any of his duties at all unless there was some kind of light. So twice a day, morning and evening, when the priest would go in to put incense on that golden altar before the veil, he would trim the lamps, put oil in the lamps, make sure that it was continually burning. And by that, he could see to do the rest of his duties. Now, verse 25, look how fast we're going. After the golden lampstand, the altar of incense from 25 to 28 is given. And he made an incense altar of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit. That's 18 inches. Its width was a cubit. That's, I just said it, 18 inches. And it's, uh, and two cubits was its height. So it's three and a half feet tall by 18 inches square. has a nice little trim around it and four little protrusions or horns be overlaid it with pure gold, etc. So, twice a day, morning and evening, my day begins, my day ends with the Lord. I burn incense before Him, which represents the prayers of the nation of Israel. So the incense goes up. It, the idea metaphorically is God going, oh, the prayers are sweet to me. This representation is sweet to me. But, the fire for the altar of incense, where did that fire originate? Where where did that come from? It came from a coal from the altar in the outer courtyard, the bronze altar, where sacrifices were made. So, a coal was taken from the sacrificial altar, brought into the prayer or incense altar, which tells the story. There can be no approach without sacrifice. You can't hang out with God just because I want to hang out with God. You have to come the way of sacrifice. There can be no worship, no prayer without sacrifice. And for us, the fulfillment is there can be no relationship with God except for the cross of Christ. The only way to approach and have fellowship with God is through the blood of Jesus that has been shed for us. And that's by the way, that's why when we pray, it's one of the reasons we always end our prayers, not by saying uh, in the name of Yahweh or in your name. But we say in Jesus name, my approach is u- utilizing the name of the son of God as I approach God, the father. That's how Jesus taught us to pray in the name of his son, Jesus, who would be the mediator of the new covenant and the go between for the new covenant. Verse 29, which is the last verse of chapter 37 and our ending verse tonight, uh, speaks about the anointing oil and the incense that they were to make. The recipe has already been given. Verse 29, he also made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices according to the work of the perfumer. So, Moses, or let's put it this way, Mo. Who has the glow (laughs) is overseeing the building of the tabernacle. His glow is fading because the very covenant that he is the mediator of is also fading. Now, we began by looking at a verse of scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to close there with me. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll close and we'll pray. But I wanted to read a little more than just that one verse. Beginning in verse 7. You there? 2 Corinthians, 3rd chapter, verse 7. But if the ministry of death, he's speaking now of the law, the law is the ministry of death, he calls it. The Jewish Old Testament law is the ministry of death. If the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadily look at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For, what, for if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, notice that word, into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We're living in the new covenant. The veil that was on our hearts that kept us from being able to see clearly the truth has been taken away in Christ. But there's more. Please don't stop with, I can see, I know the truth, I'm a New Testament believer. Notice once more, and we close, verse 18. We with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. The word transformed is the word metamorphao. That's the lexical form, metamorpho. We get the term metamorphosis. It means a total and complete change. It's a word that is used to describe the larva that turns into the pupa, that turns into the mature insect. Or a caterpillar turning into a butterfly goes through a metamorphosis, a complete and total inward and thus an outward change. You've come to Christ, great. But sanctification, growing in the Lord... Becoming holier, stronger, more godly is the process God is committed to and will be committed to until we die and go to heaven or the Lord comes to the rapture. He's committed to that total change. Please, therefore, though legalism has its lure and a lot of people are lured by legalism. They love the boundaries and the parameters and the condemnation you think who would love that but there's a lot of people who love legalism why would you ever want to go back and settle for something that paul says has faded away and was temporary when well, what is permanent is a liberty and an ongoing metamorphosis change i love that it shows me that the christian life isn't just about hearing music and singing to it, and then listening to a speech once a week. There's got to be more to it than that. There is. It's a dynamic walk where we're changed from glory to glory to glory. So don't settle for the old legalism. Be transformed into the life that is Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the time we have spent in these three chapters and the time we've spent in the book of Exodus. And we're looking forward to finishing off these truths next week thank you lord for your commitment to our metamorphosis to our sanctification as well as our salvation that the veil has been removed but our hearts are still being transformed thank you lord in jesus name amen thank you for listening to this service from calvary of albuquerque